So this morning we're going to be in Ecclesiastes 5. It's going to be Ecclesiastes 5, verses 1 through 7. <clears throat> 1 through 7 says, Guard your steps as you go to the house of God, and draw near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifices of fools, for they do not know they are doing evil. Do not be hasty in word or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God. For God is in heaven and you are on the earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For the dream comes through much effort and the voice of a fool through many words. When you make a vow to God, do not be late in paying it. He takes no delight in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Do not let your speech cause you to sin and do not say in the presence of the messenger of God that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry on account of your voice and destroy the works of your hands? For in many dreams and in many words there is emptiness. Rather, fear God. So this morning we're going to be looking at these first seven verses in Ecclesiastes 5. Before we do, let's recap since it's been about a month since the last time we've been in Ecclesiastes. Uh, so far, we've gone on this journey with Solomon to test all of these pursuits and passions and pleasures that the world has to offer. Solomon has put all of his uh, passion, all of his desire, all of his uh, money, all, all that he has, he's placed in these pursuits to study them fully and to see their end. And what he continues to find out over and over again, each pursuit, each passion, each pleasure that he pursues, that they are lacking and that they are incapable of providing him lasting fulfillment. We see that over and over again as we go through Ecclesiastes and we'll continue to see it. Everything that he puts his hand to, to try to find fulfillment, he finds it lacking at the end of the road it does not satisfy because it can't satisfy. And we're going to continue to see that. The lesson that he learns is that these things are fleeting. They're transient. It's like trying to grasp air, and it just escapes you. They don't provide any lasting fulfillment. And we've seen as we continue uh, to go through the book that Solomon points to the one who can. We've already seen that once. Uh, we're going to see it again today. And the final conclusion of Ecclesiastes is to point to the one who can fulfill, which is Christ. And his exhortation to the reader is that instead of finding fulfillment in this life under the sun and under the curse, that we should aim our pursuits toward God to find fulfillment in the person of God and the work of Christ. As a running theme or kind of a catchphrase, uh, I've placed before Augustine's wonderful statement from his Confessions, which I do recommend that you read at some point if you've not read it. Uh, in it, he says, Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our heart restless rest in thee. So this is a very, this was written at a very early time, and Augustine realized that his pursuits and his passions could not fulfill him and that he would be restless and that the human heart 
every human heart will be restless until they rest in the person of God. And that's how God had created us. He created us to commune, to fellowship with him. And by sin and misery and the destruction of, of all things that are good, that communion has been lost. But we were created for that. And I think if Augustine would give counsel to Solomon and even us, he would tell him and us that our hearts will be restless unless we rest in him. Any, any seeking of fulfillment in this life under the curse will be empty and will be fleeting and bankrupt. When describing the happy life that is the life of fulfillment, Augustine also said in his Confessions, the happy life is this, to rejoice in thee, in thee, and for thee, or to thee, in thee, and for thee. So the, the whole being of Augustine was really focused toward resting in God, to, for, and in, saying if I live, I live for God, I live to God, and I live in God. All of my life is devoted to God, and that's how be if we are to, to find fulfillment. And this, Solomon has not yet found fulfillment and continues to point us to God. And this is ultimately the lesson that Solomon continues to place before us. So up until now, Solomon has discussed many different themes uh, of, of these pursuits, and all of them, as I said, are unfulfilling. But now in chapter 5, he touches upon a subject that ought not to be empty and not to be vain. But it can quickly become empty and vain when we do not observe it correctly. That is the worship of God. If there's anything in this life that should not be empty, vain, unfulfilling, it would be the worship of God. That should be what gives us delight and joy. But here Solomon talks about it as something that can be vain or can be empty and can be unfulfilling, can be purposeless or meaningless. And again, as we've seen once and we'll see again, he, Solomon keeps reorienting us to, to find our contentment in God's providence and to fear God. But here he talks about the emptiness in man when he comes to God's house to worship and when man interacts with God. So how could this be that you could come to the house of God to worship God and that be such a vain and empty thing? It seems like that couldn't be the case. But Solomon warns against it and it can be the case. And it has nothing to do with God and everything to do with us and our mindset and uh, our purpose of being here. So before we look at Solomon's warning in this text, a moment to examine worship in general. What is worship? Well, in, his, in a tract called The Necessity of Reforming the Church, John Calvin writes, worship involves acknowledging God to be as he is the only source of all virtue, justice, holiness, wisdom, truth, power, goodness, mercy, life, and salvation. And thus, because that is God, worship is to ascribe and render to him the glory of all that is good, 
to seek all things in him alone and in every want to have recourse to him alone. So you see, Calvin had a deep understanding of worship, what worship is to be. It is to give and glorify to God all that is good. It is to seek in him all things. It is to look to him. The word worship means worthiness or the acknowledgement of worth. So when we come to the house of God, we come acknowledging the worthiness, the greatness, and the majesty of God. When we gather to worship God, we are gathering to acknowledge and to proclaim his worthiness. That's what we do. It is to give God the proper adoration that he deserves. That's what we do here. And God created us to worship. Every person is religious. Every single person on the face of the earth is religious. And they will worship something because God has created people to worship. Men are worshiping men. Women are worshiping women. That's how we were created. And many pervert that worship to the things that are not God. And many of God's condemnations throughout Scripture against humanity is their constant willingness to give that which is created, the worship that the Creator deserves. Time and time again, you see that. All throughout the Old Testament, God has to keep reminding His people, I am the one who should be worshipped, not these idols. And that's, that's why He makes so many prohibitions to, uh, like, even marriage, like marrying foreign, foreign men or women. You know, if you marry them, you're more likely to go after their idols, and that's exactly what Solomon did. Solomon's great sin was he married uh, women who were not of uh, the people of God, and they drew his heart away from God. And he built these uh, high places for them. And all throughout uh, the story of the kings, down throughout uh, the generations, God continuously says, even the good ones, they, they were a good king, but they did not tear down the high places. Well, it was Solomon who instituted the high places. So Solomon really destroyed the nation for generations because he built these high places and he taught his people to, that it was okay to worship false gods. But God did create us to, to worship. And the great example of this, speaking of all humanity, is that we have not seen fit to honor God or give him thanks, but instead we worship false gods. We've become idolaters. And that's, of course, Romans 1. You know, we hear that so many times. And we shouldn't, we shouldn't treat it as something that's familiar or, or light, but it is a weighty thing. That, it, that is the great condemnation that God created us to be in communion and fellowship with him. And we've perverted that, and we've gone after false gods and idols. But we are to worship God alone, especially his covenant people. Now, that may sound strange. Why would you have to say especially his covenant people? Well, his covenant people can also go astray. But we are to do so for, I, I think, three reasons. I'm sure there, there's a million reasons why you should worship God, right? But just three examples. Because he is God and he deserves it, other, apart from any other reason. Because he is. That is why he deserves worship. Second, because of his great kindness 
toward all of humanity, that he shows forth his goodness and his kindness, and he d has a general provi good providence towards humanity. The fact that he lets any of us live for a second is a great kindness of God, and thus we uh, should worship him for that. The three, as Christians, he has delivered us from the curse incurred by the first Adam. By the life, death, and resurrection of the second Adam, Jesus, we are saved from our sins and treated as sons of God. So why would we not worship, right? If we need no other reasons to, to worship other than he saved me, right? That's a good enough reason. Uh, the Old Covenant Christians were delivered from Egypt in the great Exodus narrative. God himself led and redeemed them so that they would worship and serve him. And the Exodus narrative was a foreshadowing of the great deliverance that we have now through Christ. So not only should God be worshipped because he's God, if he, if he did nothing for us, he deserved our worship. But he provides for us and he saves us and he gives us many, many reasons to, to worship. And we ought to worship him rightly because of that. Um, the worship of God is to be done by the whole person. We're commanded in Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 6 in the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your might. And these words that I commanded you today shall be on your heart. So in all of our thoughts and all of our words and all of our actions, our whole being is to be to the worship of God. There's nothing that's outside of our lives that isn't to be given to God as part of our worship to him. Now, of course, some of those things are different than formal worship, which is what we do here, but everything that we do ought to, to glorify our Savior. Um, see by our strength we are to worship God in all all times we are to be worshipers and it was at Mount Sinai that the proper way to worship God was formalized or established God made known to his people how he wanted to be worshiped and that of course how we ought to worship God and there's really so much that could be said about worship I mean it could be a series in and of itself you know, you have the elements of worship and the, the proper views of those and how we ought to partake in those and the regulative principle at, at the, uh, the church, how we conduct ourselves, you know, what is, what is uh, circumstantial and what is an element of worship, all of these things that we could look at. But the main concern brought by Solomon this morning really, I think, is the regulation of self how we individually ought to worship God. He's looking at us individually, saying, are you being vain in your worship? And that is kind of the mirror that we're, we're looking into this morning. Uh, how, how you as an individual come before God in worship is, is what we're seeing. And that's something that we should take seriously. How do we come to the house of God this morning? Right, do, do we come prepared? Do we come expecting to hear the word of God? Do we, are we ready to lay the truths of scripture up in our hearts? These things are vitally important uh, to our faith and to our Christian life. How can we expect to 
grow in our sanctification if we have no idea what God has said to us and we're not storing these things up. So this is the main concern. And he warns against improper conduct before the king of creation. Just as every other pursuit we've examined uh, with Solomon can be empty and vain, so too can our worship be empty and vain if we do not worship God as he would have us to worship him. In his commentary on the text, Charles Bridges writes, Even here, alas, what a mess is there a vacant service of traditional copy and dead imitation, no throbbing of spiritual life. Therefore, is the divine rule to maintain the vital sacredness of the service. So even our worship of God, he says, so many have turned it into not not based on the word of God, but off of traditions and copies of worship, vain imitation, dead imitations of worship, and that there's no throbbing of, of spiritual life to be found in the church, that this is how worship can become vain and empty and pointless for us to, to do. So let's get into our text, starting at verse 1. Solomon says, guard your steps as you go to the house of God and draw near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know they are doing evil. So in light of what we've looked at about worship, Solomon here gives us a, a solemn warning to guard our footsteps when drawing near to the house of God. So this is a warning to guard your footsteps as you come into God's presence to worship God. The people of God are to come before the presence of God reverently. And that is a word, I think, that has been lost in our day. The need to be reverent when we come before God. Not to come flippantly or carelessly. Or not to come unprepared. We're to come reverently and expecting. We are to come before God knowing our sin and knowing his holiness. Not, not to expect to be punished by coming in the presence of God, but understanding our place as the creation and his place as the creator. We're coming before the holy God. This isn't a, a warning not to come to worship or even to come in fear. We are commanded to attend the worship of God and we are commanded to come reverently. So that's the difference. We're not to come fearfully, but reverently, that we're coming before the the Holy One of all creation, the one who breathes stars into creation. We're coming before him this morning to hear his word, to pray to him. This is what we're doing. So the warning here isn't to deter us or frighten us from worship, but it is an exhortation to come the right way, that we're to come reverently before the Holy One. It, is, it really is to come with your hearts and your ears engaged. And as we read in Deuteronomy, we are to come and worship with all of our hearts, all of our souls, and all of our minds and strength. That is to worship with our whole person. So this morning, are we worshiping with our whole person? Are we bringing other things in that will distract us from that worship or deter us from the proper worship of God? 
we're urged by Solomon here to draw near, to listen, rather than to make the sacrifice of fools. And Jay Adams asked the question of the Old Testament Israelites, and I thought a lot about this. This is a really good question. One wonders whether the average Israelite went to the temple to listen. That's a good question. Because you have this, the sacrificial system, which was vitally important. It was a foreshadowing of our Savior. But did the Israelites turn worship into, we'll go there and we'll make the sacrifice uh, as a foreshadowing of the forgiveness of our sins, but we don't go to listen so that we can stop sinning as much. So did, was it abused? Did it become abused? And what if we pose that same question to ourselves? Does the average Christian come to church to listen? Why do we come to church? Do we come to hear from God through his word? When we think about the Old Testament temple, we automatically think about sacrifice. Um, And obviously the sacrificial system, as I said, was vitally important because of its foreshadowing. But another element was to hear and to be taught by God. And we find that throughout uh, the Old Testament. When Moses blessed the sons of Israel before his death, he said to the sons of Levi in Deuteronomy 33.10, he said, They will teach your ordinance to Jacob and your law to Israel. They shall put incense before you and the whole burnt offerings on your altar. So it was given to the sons of Levi to minister in the temple and to, to offer sacrifices. That was part of it. Uh, but they were to teach the ordinances of God to the people. They weren't just to do, do the whole sacrificial system. They were to teach. Thus says the, the word of God. This is how you ought to conduct yourselves in the house of God and in your daily lives. So it was um, to teach. Um, and we should uh, also have a mindset that we should come to, to listen and not to uh, give the sacrifice of fools. point. So, uh, the, the emphasis of you need to listen is all throughout scripture, especially in that, that section of, uh, with uh, Mary and Martha. Um, but, uh, see, but here it is said that they were to teach the ordinances of, of God to the people. You have in Malachi 2.7, we're told that the priests should maintain knowledge and people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the of the Lord of Armies. It was the duty of the priests to not only to offer those sacrifices, but to teach the people the commandments of God. And J. Adams makes a, like I said, a, an interesting, or poses an interesting question. Did they go to the house, did they go to the temple to hear and to listen to what God has said? Our uh, Westminster Catechism the larger catechism, question 160, ask, what is required of those that hear the word preached? So we come here, right? We come here every morning, or every Sunday morning, and Sunday evenings to hear the word preached, right? What is required of those who hear the word preached? Listen closely. It is required of those that hear the word preached 
that they attend upon it with diligence, preparation, and prayer. Diligence, preparation, and prayer. Examine what they hear by the scriptures. Receive the truth with faith, love, meekness, and readiness of mind as the word of God. Meditate and confer on it. Hide it in their heart and bring forth the fruit of it in their lives. So when we hear the word of God preached, that is what is required of us. We are to be diligent in its hearing, to be prepared, and be ready in prayer for it. We are really to guard ourselves against formalism, doing something for the sake of doing something. Right? There's a lot of that that is kind of rampant where I grew up, that you're just like a cultural Christian. You just go to church because that's what you always do. You always just go to church. My mom went to church, so I go to church. It's like, okay, but why do you go to church? Well, just because it's, it's what the Kaisers do. You know, that's not really a, a great answer. You don't go to church just because that's what you do. You should know why you are coming to the house of God. And Solomon warns that coming, uh, if, for those who don't come to the house of God to listen, that they, they really come and they offer the sacrifice of fools. It was the duty, like I said, preach to teach the people the word of God, the duty of elders and qualified men in the church to teach the people the word of God. And we ought to listen, prepared. We ought, we ought to receive it as the Thessalonians received it. How did the Thessalonians receive it? Well, Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 2.13, For this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of mere man, but as it really is, the word of God, which also is at work in you who believe. So the received word of God is to be believed and is to be received as the word of God. Thus, if we prepare for any other thing in this life, how much more so should we be prepared to receive the word of God? It should be in the forefront of our minds. The sacrifice of fools is to come to the house of God because, as I said, you're supposed to come to the house of God and really for no other reason other than obligation. Vanity enters the house of God when we come unprepared and we come with our worldly thoughts, pleasures, and plans instead of our mind focused on the right and proper worship of God. So that's how it can become vain and empty. J. Adams notes, faith to be true to the Bible begins with understanding and knowledge. It proceeds with action that at every point is parallel to the inner heart commitment. Otherwise, one is simply going through the motions. So we, what he's emphasizing there is that true faith begins with understanding and knowledge. If we have no understanding of who Jesus is, how can we say we have faith in Jesus? If we don't know what faith is, how can we say we have faith? How basic it is, understanding and knowledge to come and listen and to, to hear what we ought to believe. Um, and how it really permeates everything that we say we believe. It proceeds with action that at every point is parallel to uh, the inner heart commitment. So he's saying that that knowledge that we hear and listen to is really the catalyst for that inner heart commitment. The, the actual change of heart comes by the hearing of the word of God and the application of the spirit of God. 
so we should come prepared and ready to listen and to, to be teachable. Uh, and we really are to guard against formalism, guard against vain and empty worship, guard against bringing in other pleasures and, and thoughts that aren't centered around worshiping God. Now, we're not going to do that perfectly, of course, but that needs to be our disposition. We, we need to wake up Sunday mornings, even Saturday nights, being prepared to hear the word of God, for praying for the teaching, for praying that the service is edifying to, to all the, the attendees, that if anyone is not saved, that they would be saved by the preaching of the word of God, by the Holy Spirit. This is how we ought to prepare for worship. And this is why Solomon gives this warning. We are to guard against formalism. Solomon says that they don't even know that they're doing evil. These people who are, who are like this, who are treating worship vainly, they don't even know they're doing evil. Well, it's really interesting. I thought, well, if they don't know they're doing evil, how can they guard against it? But that's why our Westminster Confession urges us upon the hearing of the word of God to attend upon it diligently, to prepare for it, and to pray that it will be placed within the heart. So it's basically examination, to examine yourself. Am I coming to the house of God properly? Am I coming reverently? These are things that we can ask ourselves and we can uh, do that along with reading scripture. You know, you have Isaiah who comes before, the God, before God and he's just completely ruined by it, right? Now, uh, like I said, we don't have to come fearfully, but we come reverently that we're coming before the, the Holy One, not just a Holy One, the Holy, Holy, Holy One. And we ought to come prepared and reverently. And we are to examine what is preached or taught in Sunday school. You see, if you're really doing these things, there, there isn't a way that, or it'd be really hard to be thinking of worldly passions and pleasures or business or, or anything else. If you're examining what you're hearing right now, you're probably not thinking about the chores coming up this week, right? You're thinking, well, is Ryan saying what he should be saying, right? Is this, is this the proper teaching of scripture. So see, your mind is engaged in, in understanding and hearing instead of just coming uh, vainly. And Solomon continues in verses 2 through 5. He says, Do not be hasty in word or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For the dream comes through much effort and the voice of a fool through many words. When you make a vow to God, do not be late in paying it, for he takes no delight in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than you should vow and not pay. So here he warns us of another way that we can have vain worship, which is really rash. Yeah, rashness of speech is vain worship. It is a way that we uh, cannot worship God correctly. So instead of listening and storing up things of the Lord in our hearts, we speak carelessly or, or rashly. 
in, in the pagan religions of Solomon's day, and it's, it's probably still pretty relevant, I would think, common for vain repetitions to be at the center of worship, that they would just chant or repeat things over and over as a, a sign of, of worship to their God. And Solomon, this was, I think, written at the very end of Solomon's life. I've said that before, and that he's kind of reflecting upon his life and all of the, the things that he sought, how they led to unfulfillment. And then at the end of his life, he's, he's getting older, and he's, he's realizing, no, I should have been following God and chasing after God instead of these pleasures. He's, he's probably experienced this stuff in his own life by marrying those foreign women and erecting the, those high places, and he's probably seen a bunch of this chanting, right? So he's probably familiar with this. Bell worship in particular featured vain repetitions, just you know, saying the same thing over and over as an act of worship. Uh, but Jesus rebuked the Pharisees for their many words and long prayers, not because of the, the length of the prayer, has really nothing to do with that, but because of the vainness behind it. That it, it wasn't that that they were just having long prayers and making sure that they prayed about everything they needed to pray for. That's a good thing. But it was, it was like soulless, or it was just empty. It was vain. It, they were just saying things to be heard. Right? They were being rash in their speech. And the Lord prayed often and for extended times, but never vainly. So we are to imitate our Savior and pray as he prayed, that we can pray in long amounts of time, but we are never to pray vainly, rashly. Rashness of speech can also make you run headlong into a vow that you never intend to keep. And this is a, the more I've studied vows and like hearing uh, Pastor Hines preach his sermon on vows, how important vows are and how your word really is binding when you say you're gonna do something. You need to do it. When you take a vow, you need to take you need to take that seriously. So I think Solomon here is warning us: don't be rash in your speech, don't take vows that you have no intent of keeping. But we must be careful in in making vows, and it's it's really a, a tragedy that so many people today, even Christians, especially Christians, because they should know this and be taught this think very little of their vows, which is evident in our society and in our churches. The marriage vow is basically bad. Like, what, is, what is that supposed to mean when we take our marriage vows? What is that? Is, just, is that just saying some sweet to-dos to your spouse that you're about to marry, and then in a few months when they're annoying you, it's just like, how just get out of this? No big deal. Well, no, that's not what a, a vow is. A vow is basically seen is more like guidelines to be followed as long as your spouse upholds his or her end of the bargain. It's like saying, I will love and honor my spouse as long as she acts in a way that deserves it. Well, that's not much of a vow, is it? In reality, failure to love your husband or wife when they don't remotely deserve it is a disregard to the vow you took. You must love them even when they don't deserve it. And if you don't love them when they don't deserve it, then you're not upholding your end of the vow. You must love them because you have vowed to. Another example of vows is vows to your church. 
Are those important? I've been in many churches where it's not important. Uh, I've been in, I've, <laughs> I've sat in uh, like new members classes uh, when talking about membership. And it's, it's been like, well, why can't we just come? Why do we actually have to become members? And it's just a bunch of hee-hawing around. It's like, well, well, because, you know, you're supposed to. You know, it's, it's, it's what you do. If you come to a church, you just, you come and you, you join the church. And, you know, it's, it's seen as something that doesn't really matter. And so many churches, you know, Presbyterians, they transfer memberships and they, they do close examinations. These things are important, but so many think very little of the, the membership vow. When you join Bridwell, you vowed that you would submit yourself to the government and discipline of the church and to promote its peace and purity. You vowed that. You said, I will do this. That's weighty. That you will do everything you can to promote the peace and purity of Bridwell Heights. That was your vow. You vowed to support the church in worship and work to the best of your ability toward that end. And the, it's not something to be taken lightly. Parents vow to raise their children as covenant members of God's visible kingdom at the time of their baptism. They vow that. I will raise this child up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. But not only that, and I, th I think this should be talked about more, the congregation vows to assist the parent. In their, you know, Patrick will to us and say, do you vow to assist these parents Listen to everyone and say, yes. Okay, well, what does that look like? How do we do that? We should take that seriously. How do we even think of the other covenant children in our church? Are we praying for their conversion? Are we praying for their prosperity? Are we, are we praying that their generation will produce Christians? They will have lineages of, of faithfulness down throughout the generations. Are we praying that God will send them spouses and children who love them? All of these things, we vowed to do these things. Ordained ministers must vow to be zealous and faithful in maintaining the truths of the gospel and the purity and peace of the church, no matter the circumstance. It doesn't matter what the culture looks like. It doesn't matter what the denomination looks like. It matters what that man has vowed. That man says, I will vow to uphold the true faith found in the scriptures. And I will promote peace and purity. But notice those two things aren't mutually exclusive. You can't, you can't say, okay, well, I'm, I'm just going to, to maintain peace and purity. I'm not going to make this a big issue. If it's a big issue, it's a big issue. So those two things, it's, it's people try to, to make that a bigger, bigger thing. But you have to be faithful. And you're not being faithful if you try to promote peace when there is no peace. All right? You have to fight for the truth. Uh, the ordained minister must vow that he receives and adopts the confession of faith and catechisms as, contained, as containing the system of doctrine taught in the Holy Scriptures. When he does that, he's saying, I, I agree with what is said in the Westminster Confession, and I will uphold it. That is a vow. That is what you're saying you will do before God. These are very weighty vows, but they're good vows. And, and those vows aren't just offered to one another. You're not just offering it. You're not just getting up and saying, oh, yeah, I vow to do this. You're doing this before the holy God. You're saying, I vow to do this in the presence of God. I will love you. You're getting married. Or 
I vow to do this. I will defend the faith if you're an ordained minister. So these are very weighty things that you're agreeing to. And what Solomon warns is that it's better not to vow than to vow and not pray. So it's better just to keep your mouth shut if you have no intent of upholding the peace and purity of Bridwell. And say, I'll do it. An ordained minister in any of these spheres of uh, vowing. Do not make vows then dilly-dally when it comes time to uphold what you vowed. A vow is something that is taken upon voluntarily. No one forces you to take upon a vow. It's voluntary. But once you swear that vow, it's no longer voluntary. It's an obligation. You've voluntarily entered into a vow, and now you are obligated to keep it before God. And that payment is bound to the person. God's people are warned in Deuteronomy 23, verse 21. It says, When you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay to pay it, for it would be sin in you, and the Lord your God will surely require it uh, of you. However, if you refrain from vowing, it would not be sin in you. You shall be careful to perform what goes out of your lips, just as you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised. So in that verse, what you see is saying this is voluntary, that, but once you vow it, if you don't pay it, it'll be sin to you. So just don't vow if you have no intention of keeping that vow. You must keep the vow. Finally, real quick, we'll look at verses 6 through 7. It says, Do not let your speech cause you to sin. Do not say in the presence of, your messen- of the messenger of God, it is a mistake. Why should God be angry on account of your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For in many dreams and in many words there is emptiness. Rather, fear God. So basically, uh, 6 through 7 is a summary of what has just been taught, which is to treat the worship of God correctly, properly, reverently, and not vainly. It is a serious visit, uh, or it is a, a serious sin to treat the worship of God flippantly and to Offer promises and vows that you do not intend to keep. Do not be vain in your worship or in your speech when you come to the, the house of, of God. And he, he concludes, instead of idol worship, fear God. And I mean idol worship in two ways. I mean idol as in false gods, or idol as in you're just in neutral. You're not a neutral worshiper. So you're to worship reverently. And the implication is that those who come before the presence of God in the way that Solomon described, don't fear God. He says, instead of being like that, fear God. So the implication is, you must fear God. And if you don't fear God, then you're going to do the the opposite. So Solomon is warning us to, to flee from vainly worshiping God, to come to his courts prepared to worship reverently, and to be mindful of what you swear. Any, any very, very quick comments? Yeah, go. Yeah, you, you.
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, how, how in the world can you possibly uh, be sanctified if you keep leaving the people you can't get along with? Same thing in marriage. If you can't, the Lord gave you a wife to sanctify you. The Lord gave you a husband to sanctify you. If you keep leaving them to find someone who is just like you, nothing's going on. So. Oh, I can't. It, it's pretty short. That one's pretty short, I think, isn't it, Patrick? The, the confessions, like the total length of the confessions. I, I look at it, huh? Yeah, uh, yeah. I, it's not very long. I, I read it on ebook, so I have no idea. Of, uh, it's not, huh? Yeah, City of God's like a thousand, nine hundred to a thousand pages. I think Confessions is like two hundred, sub two hundred. They well, they have modern translations as well. You can get the old, or you can get modern versions. Oh, I'm sure it is. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's. All right, I'm getting the nod. I'm going to pray. <laughs> well, the twelfth nod. This is, I'm going on twelve nods now. So, all right, uh, Father, we uh, we thank you for giving us this time in Ecclesiastes. We pray that uh, you would impress upon us the importance of of worship. That uh, we would not worship vainly or idly, but that we would worship reverently and. Uh, that we would come to your house expecting to hear from you and expecting to love each other, love you, and uh, we just pray that you would, you would impress that upon us. Uh, now we ask that you would uh, prepare our hearts for uh, uh, the hearing of your word uh, from Pastor Hines and uh, that you would edify us through it. Uh, in Christ's name we pray, amen.